Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now as your children, thanking you that we are not orphans, not left to fend for ourselves, not left to try and make it happen on our own, try to figure it out, try to be smart enough, try to be strong enough, try to endure enough. We are your children. And so we come into your presence and we thank you that your grace is there in our time of need. We thank you that we are bathed in your love as dearly loved children. And how we pray now that we would understand what is our birthright? What is in our DNA? How have you made us? Oh God, I pray that we would see together we are born and indeed reborn to love. So because you are love, because we are your children, would you cause us now to walk in love and to give ourselves to your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we've seen so far in our series on First Peter is that we've seen what God has done for us in Christ. We've seen that we are children of God and that we have an imperishable hope, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. We have an inexpressible joy, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And we indeed have an inestimable privilege, something even the angels long to look into, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And then, after he lays out all that we have in Christ, we begin to see, therefore, we should become what we are. This is what we are. This is what we should then become. We have a series of commands, five of them, to be precise, in chapter 1, verses 13 through chapter 2, verse 3. We've already seen some of them, we're called to hope fully, we're called to be holy, and we're called to walk in reverent fear of our Father while we're in this time of exile on earth as citizens of heaven. Today we see the fourth command, which is to love one another. Next week we'll see the fifth command, which is to long for the milk of the word so that the salvation we have received we can grow up into like babies that long for the milk and therefore grow up, that we would grow up as we long for the milk of the Word. Now, the structure of this passage, what we're looking at today for loving one another is simply exquisite. It's a perfect example of what we often call a bilateral, if you're a grammar nerd. What happens is it's just a sandwich. That's what it is. There is a, a command in the middle that is the meat of the sandwich and the reasons for it on the outside like two pieces of bread. So the command in the middle of this sandwich is to love one another, but he gives two reasons on the outside as the bread for why we ought to love one another. So these two past realities are like the pieces of bread that now bring us to the command in the middle to love one another. And the two pieces of bread are really two pictures 
of what God has already accomplished in our life. So what we're going to see is we're going to unpack those two images in verse 22 and verses 23 to 25 to see what has already happened. And then we're going to move to the command in the middle, which is to love one another. So we begin in verse 22, this first picture of what has already happened to us. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So what has happened to us already? We have, our souls have been purified. He's using the imagery from the the sacrificial system of being purified, of being consecrated. That's what's happening here. He's calling out that a consecration has happened. This word occurs seven times in the New Testament. Four times it refers to actual ritual purification or consecration. And then it occurs three times in the epistles for a present purification, while in 1 Peter, it refers to this past consecration. So when did this consecration or purification happen? Well, the answer here comes by the phrase, by obedience to the truth. This purification that's happened to our souls, how did it happen? By obedience to the truth. Now, what does that mean? Does that happen, in other words, progressively we become more purified, or is he talking about something that happened in a definitive way in the past? And that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about our conversion. And here's why. Of the many reasons to see that he's talking about this happening in the past, two reasons I want to focus on. The way that the New Testament uses this phrase, obedience to the truth, is a reference to the gospel. And then we'll look at, secondly, the context of this passage that I think proves it further. So here's a couple of examples about why obedience to the truth really is a reference back to when they received the gospel, when they believed. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. The moment when you heard this word of truth, what is it? It is the gospel. In other words, Peter's saying you obeyed the gospel summons to repent and believe when you heard about what Jesus had done. Or Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. You have heard before, this hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, bearing fruit and increasing. And we could give like 15 references to show this word of truth is the gospel. That's what Peter's talking about. But the best argument, I think, would be to just keep reading What is this word of truth Peter's referring to? Look at verse 25. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So when the gospel was preached, 
to these people and they heard this word of truth and it summons to repent and believe in the good news of what Christ has accomplished. Peter's saying at that moment when you received the gospel, it's not anymore like all of hell is breaking loose all around you. That might be true. Heaven has broken loose inside of you. Everything's changed because you have been changed from the inside out. This is exactly what Paul talks about in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, when the Spirit sets us apart, consecrates us, gives new life to a dead soul. So the first verse that we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, the sanctification or setting apart of the Spirit, Peter is now further explaining what that means when you were consecrated, when you were set apart, when everything changed for you. When did it happen? When you heard the gospel and believed. Now, why did that happen? What was God's purpose? Peter says it was for a sincere brotherly love. Look at verse 22. You have been consecrated by obedience to the truth in order to have this sincere brotherly love. In other words, this new purified disposition is now this disposition to love. It's now part of our DNA to love. So he says this has happened and it's sincere love now. It's not uh, some cheap sham counterfeit. It's real love because it's the real work of God. You don't have to try to drum it up. It's been done in you. And because you were born to love, the command is going to be, therefore, now love. He's done the work. Now do it. But he's not done giving reasons for this command. So I want to skip down to verses 23 to 25 because he's going to further explain this work of new birth that's happened inside of us. So look what else has happened. Now just the image of consecration from the sacrificial system, but now this imagery, this picture of begetting, begotten by seed, born by seed. Look at verses 23 to 25. Since, so he's talking about the command, you should love one another. Why? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So here's what Peter's doing. He's giving a near textbook definition of the new birth, or what we call regeneration. Regeneration is where God implants new life in the soul. So I want to try to distinguish here these theological categories. We often use these words regeneration and conversion. I want to go into a little bit more detail to describe the difference. What's the difference between regeneration and conversion? Sometimes we talk about we were converted or we were born again. Let's be real clear 
with these categories. Regeneration is an act of God in which he implants this principle of new life, this seed into a man or a woman with the result that they have a new governing disposition, a new principle, a a new heart that now governs a way of living, a, a heart that's been made holy or purified. Peter is trumpeting this truth that what God has done is that he's implanted new life, new seed, imperishable seed within, and that is going to completely change them. So from what source does this new birth come before we talk about conversion? What what is actually implanted in us in this regeneration? We have here both the reference to the new birth, you've been born again, verse 23, and to the seed that's implanted, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So he doesn't just say the word new birth, he says here is what actually is implanted. What's implanted is the word of God. So this work of God, this implanting of the seed, we're supposed to see is completely God's work. We don't do that at all. This is completely one-sided. Just like you didn't decide when your birthday would be. You didn't say, I want to be born now. Peter's already said, you've been born again to a living hope. This is entirely the work of God. You didn't cooperate in it. You didn't decide in it. This was God's doing where to a dead soul, God decides it's going to be now born. There's going to be life where there's only deadness. How? He says God implants this living seed, not perishable, but imperishable. Now conversion, therefore, is something that we do. We respond. So when a baby is born, so you've got this this life that happens, and then the the baby is born, what does the baby do? There's signs of life, like crying, for example. Or when one of my children was born, one of the most amazing things that I ever saw was the doctors were over here talking, and, and I suddenly started talking, and they said, hey, watch this, and my daughter turned and looked at me. Where's that voice coming from? I know that voice. What happens in regeneration is that we become born as children of God and therefore that new life creates this sense of when I hear the gospel, when I hear the word of God, suddenly uh, my whole soul turns towards it and there's, there's life like a baby cries and you know the baby's alive. Why do you repent and believe? Why do you receive the gospel? It's proof that God has done something in your heart, taken out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh, suddenly, There's life, there's responsiveness, there's signs of life all around you. That is the difference. 
Conversion is something that we do. We turn away from sin and turn toward God. But that only happens. Our response away from sin and toward God because God worked first. God gave life first so that conversion turning to him is the first sign of life, the first evidence that you're actually a child of God. Now, Acts 20.21 is a great example of what conversion then looks like. When the word came to people, what happens? What happens is that they turn away from sin toward God, right? Acts 20, 21, I testify both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this look like when there's actual preaching? 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of, to come. So what Paul is saying here is what happened when the word of God came? He says, we, we know we know we're assured of what God's done. Why? Because when the word came, you received it for what it is, the word of God. That's the proof of God's work inside of you. And then what happened? You turned away. You turned away from sin. And you turned to God. And now you're hoping in this return of Christ from heaven. So this new work that God has done. Here's the question. Will it last? Is this the kind of thing that happens where you make a fix and then it needs to be fixed again because it doesn't last, because it's not made for the test of time? Peter says, this work that God has done, this new life that God has implanted, this seed is imperishable. It's not going to fade away. It's not going to lose its luster. It's not going to end. How do you know that? Well, Isaiah has something to say about it. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40. He says, the word of our God stands forever. Unlike anything else in this world that is fading away, grass withers, flower fades, word of God stands forever. You see his point. Here people are, they are citizens of this world and it's all passing away, but God has made you citizens of heaven with a word that cannot end. So you are going to be his forever. That is the promise here. Now let's dig a little deeper into what Isaiah is doing because Peter's not just saying, where can I find a verse that talks about the word lasting a long time? It's not all he's doing here. The context is powerful. Isaiah 40, God's people 
Israelites are in exile. Exile to the Babylonians. And surely they're thinking, how could we ever be rescued from this exile and ever be returned to our homeland because of how powerful the Babylonians are? And God comes along in Isaiah 40 with all of these God-sized images, and he says, compared to me, all of the nations are like dust on the scales, a drop in the bucket, less than nothing. He is the Lord eternal. He, he dwells in, in circle above the, the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. His point is look at the Babylonians that seem so strong, but then look at God. And then you see they're like nothing compared to him, a drop in the bucket. And so these nations are like that grass. They're like the, the dandelion orb that you just pick up and blow on, and it's gone. What looks so powerful and so beautiful, like the glory of the nations, like Babylon, is shown to be nothing. And you know this, Babylon lies buried in historical dust. And Peter is saying to these readers, yes, it looks like Rome is so great, like Babylon of old, but they're nothing compared to the king of heaven. And God's promises are going to be powerful enough to accomplish his purpose, and Rome is not going to stand in the way any more than Babylon stood in the way. And Christian, do you see this? Babylon, the Roman Empire, you can go look at their ruins, but look at the church today that's gone through so many different things, so many times when it looked like the church would be overpowered. And G.K. Chesterton said, five times in history, it looks like the church went to the dogs. But all five times, the dog died and the church lives. It's true, God's word is not gonna return empty. He's going to accomplish his purpose and nothing is going to stand in its way, certainly not a pandemic in our day. God's purposes are going to be fulfilled. So, here's now the therefore. This word of the gospel, it's come to us as well, like it came to Peter's readers. So the main point is, you were reborn to love, therefore, Love, look at verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the point. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see what this means. Let's get the logic in our mind. It's as if in Mark 2, Jesus comes to the paralytic with the power of the creator. And he says, take up your mat and walk. If, if he didn't have the ability to do that, then obviously that command is cruel, just pointing out his inability. 
I can't walk, you know that. What Jesus did, though, with his word is he made dead legs alive. And so now he says, walk. I made your legs alive, so walk. Peter's saying, get this, I have given your heart life to love, so now love. It's the most natural thing in the world. Birds were born to fly, so fly. Horses were made to run, so run. Christians, you've been made to love, so love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I want to focus for a moment on that word earnestly so that you'll feel the the urgency and intensity of this command. What does it mean to love one another earnestly? This word only occurs two other times, and I think it gives it a flavor. Luke chapter 22, verse 44. This is what Jesus did in Gethsemane. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Can we agree that's a picture of earnestness? He's praying so earnestly that he starts sweating blood. Or Acts chapter 12, verse 5, it's used there as well. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. In other words, they understood this is life and death. Peter's not just in prison for some little undisclosed amount of time. James has just been killed. Peter's next. They're earnestly praying like it's a matter of life and death. Do you see love that way? That when you hear this command to love earnestly, it's not just icing on the cake. That, you know, in my personality, maybe I'm not as loving or maybe I've had these circumstances in life where I'm stressed out and therefore being nice, being loving isn't quite as important. I can do all the other commands of Christianity, but this love thing isn't as important. It's a matter of life and death. That's the flavor of this earnestness. God has done all of this not so that you can love lazily, but earnestly. Because you see, Christ died for this. Christ bled for this. He didn't die so that his children could bicker. He died so that they could be this place that says, we're, we're sold out to love each other. This is part of our DNA. It's part of our birthright of why Jesus died. He died for this. So we're earnest about it. We're not lazy or passive about it. Love matters immensely to us. And where does it come from? It comes from a pure heart. This is now the, the bilateral coming into the picture. Why is it that we can love so sincerely, so purely? Answer, because he's changed your heart 
So of course, from that heart, you're able to love. So let's, let's try to really zero in on this. I don't want you to sell yourself short, to somehow think that there are a number of excuses for why I am not as loving as I should be. When people look at you, is this the thing that rises to the top as part of your DNA as a Christian that whatever else they are, as a loving person. I don't want you to sell yourself short with a series of excuses that says, well, it's not my temperament. It's not my personality type. It's not my Enneagram to be that. It's not, you know, I've got all these things in my life happening right now, and I'm so stressed out, and therefore, and therefore, and therefore, I don't love. And this text is saying, no, no, no. The therefore is look at what he's done. Look at what he died for. Look at how he made you. Look what's part of your DNA. Therefore, love, which means this. This is what I've been trying to do all week, and I guarantee you it will change you. The impulses that you have coming from your heart. This text says there's going to be impulses and desires that come up out of you to love. Obey them. When there's some idea, when there's some desire, when there's some dream, like I should do this for that person, do it. When these things arise up out of your heart because of the new heart that you've been given, these new desires are going to come up, obey them. Do them. Act on them. Seize on the moment because you're born of God. That's the logic. God is love, and you've been begotten by God so his children will love. There's going to be impulses, desires, dreams that are birthed out of you that are loving. This text says, give yourself to it. Earnestly, not lazily, not passively. When they come, act on them. And because you're still a sinner, because you still have rebellious thoughts and desires, resist those. Don't act on those. Realize Jesus didn't die so that you could do that. He died so that you could do this, so that you could love because it's part of your very DNA. Now here's something that was deeply challenging for me this week. As I was reading more about what the Bible calls us to when it calls us to love, it hit on something that I think is, is really a problem at Bethlehem. At Bethlehem, we tend to be a place that tends to celebrate truth, teaching, content, preaching, and that's exactly right, we should. But here's the question, I read this text and it just stopped me in my tracks. I probably read it 100 times before. This time it landed on me. First Timothy 1, verse five. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
It's exactly what Peter's saying. Love one another from a pure heart. Paul is saying, that's why we teach. That's why we preach. That's why we share truth. All of the teaching ministry of Paul, he's saying, had a goal, and it was love. And that stopped me in my tracks because I'm asking myself and I'm asking you now the question, is that what comes out of these services, out of these sermons? When we teach and preach, do you walk out of a sermon like this ready to love more? Or have you just added more content, more information, If the preaching of God's word to God's children is not producing love, then something's wrong. Something's wrong with us. Something's misfiring. Something's getting in the way. Are we becoming a more loving people the more preaching and truth we hear? Don't get into this ditch of saying, well, you can be a truth person or you can be a love person. The Bible doesn't let you say that because 1 Corinthians 13, love rejoices in the truth. They're friends. They don't have to be reconciled. They're already together. Or Paul saying, no, you speak the truth in love. You don't separate truth and love. So here's a really practical question. When the church gets into issues that are potentially divisive, debatable, explosive, what comes out of it? Do we give in to differences leading to divisions? Or does a difference of opinion under the lordship of the love of Christ actually preserve unity. So when you have something sensitive like the church reopening, when should it happen? How should it happen? And you've got five different opinions of people stating their answers. Here's what tends to happen. You tend to think, well, I'm right. And if I'm right and really believe this, then I'm going to press it in, and you think, I'm glorifying God when I'm saying what's right. But the question is, if 1 Corinthians 13 is right, that you can have an understanding of all mysteries, you could be right about everything, and have not love. Paul says you're nothing. You're a clanging symbol. In all of your conversations, in all of your debates, in all of the context in which they're happening, don't think to yourself, please, that as long as I'm right, I'm glorifying God. You can say right words from a jerk heart, and it does not glorify God. I was tempted to grab some symbols right now and just start clashing them. Here's what I think, clash, 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 clash. If your heart 
is not right with love towards the person you're talking about, all your words are wrong. It's not glorifying God. God is just hearing clang, 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 clang. There's no moment in the Christian life where God is glorified when you're a jerk and don't care about the person you're talking to. Christ died so that you would approach them differently, speak to them differently. Jesus said, this is the brand image of the church. How is the church to be known? He said, love one another. By this the world will know that you're my disciples. If my followers are going to be a certain way, which means love is the display window. The church is the display window for the supernatural love of Christ to the world. That says, look, this is what Jesus is like. In your interactions and in your conversations, are you showing that? Can they take your behavior and draw a straight line back to where it comes from? Here's what I mean. I read a story this week of a man who was at Wheaton College, and he, he was an older gentleman, and he was working there at the college, and he, was, he would do something that everybody else found odd. Every day, he would be found feeding the ducks, sitting by the ducks, hanging around with them. And because they were kind of campus ducks and, and he was feeding them, they didn't fly away in the winter. So he would take the, the campus pond and he would break a hole in the ice so they would have water to swim. And he would do it every morning. Wake up in the winter when it's just crazy cold and he would break open the ice for the ducks. And somebody once asked him, like, why do you do this all the time? And he shared a story about how when he was at war, his battalion was blindsided, the entire battalion died, and he alone, he was wounded, and so as the, the other uh, enemies were going around and checking on the dead, he just decided to play dead, but they were actually finishing everybody off, shooting them in the head, and he thought, there's, there's no way I can survive this. Suddenly, some ducks flew up, and these, these, this other army got so distracted by the ducks, they chased the ducks and tried to shoot them, and so he lived. And he couldn't get over the fact that he was alive. And so every time that he saw ducks, he was thankful for what that meant to him. And as a Christian, when people look at us, there should be that, why are you like that? Why do you do that? Why do you talk that way? Why do you do that for people? It should be a straight line back where we tell them the story. 
Oh, I once was way different. Only cared about myself, selfish, self-centered. But then love came into the world, Jesus Christ. And he took on flesh. And he died on a cross. And he saved me from hell and from sin and from Satan. And now I can never be the same. Is that your story? Is that what people see? And therefore, when they ask for a reason, for the hope that's in you, does it come back to, I love because he first loved me? Let's pray. Father, I ask. I ask that love now would be the brand of the church would be what stands forth, what people see first, and that we would give a reason for it, that you would help us with every impulse that comes from this heart that has been begotten by you. Every impulse towards love, God, help us to obey it, Help us to seize on it. Help us to be earnest about it and to see and feel Christ died for it. In Jesus' name, amen.